This patient has a newly defined subset of lung cancer that was discovered in 2004, namely a tumor with a mutation in the EGF receptor. The clinical investigator who unraveled the mystery of this patient's subgroup, which makes up about 10% of non small cell lung cancer, was Dr. Tom Lynch, who I first met in 2004, about two weeks before his discovery would be published in the New England Journal. At the time of that interview, the information in this historic paper was embargoed, so Dr. Lynch couldn't discuss it, although I was suspicious immediately that something was up. And quickly figured it out when I saw Tom on Good Morning America a couple weeks later discussing this landmark finding. I met with Dr. Lynch to discuss the fascinating patient presented by Dr. Sosinski and Ms. Fish Stiegel, but Dr. Lynch began our discussion by reviewing what we knew about EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors in lung cancer before the mutation was discovered. We were very frustrated because we were using gefitinib and erlotinib and not seeing any effect when you added them to chemotherapy in first line. And people were getting pretty down on both drugs. But yet, those of us who treated a ton of patients knew that there were these unusual patients who had dramatic responses. In fact, the first patient that led us to the mutation discovery at Mass General is still doing wonderfully seven and a half years later on gefitinib. So we knew that there had to be something biologically different about this group of patients. And that's what led our group, as well as the group at Dana Farber Memorial Sloan Kettering, to find that these EGFR mutations drove the biology of a small but very important subset of patients with non small cell lung cancer. And then after that occurred, I think people began to look at other subtypes, for example, the RAS mutant patients, as being people who had a unique biology, the ALK translocated lung cancers, as being a small but important group. My hope is that within the next five years, we'll be able to classify more than half of lung cancers based on a driving biology that explains their behavior. In this situation, you're talking about a mutation in the tumor, not in the normal cells. Right. And how did you discover this? There were a bunch of people you had, what, a handful of people who had these great responses, and those were the people you studied. So the interesting part about this is we had, I remember if you go back to the early part of 2004, people discounted the potential for mutations because they felt they just couldn't be common enough. At our place, the way we came to this was Daniel Haber, who's a breast cancer geneticist, heard about my patient, and we talked about her response, this one patient who had this remarkable response. And he felt, based on his understanding of tumor biology in other settings, such as chronic myelogenous leukemia and GIST, he said to me one day, he said, Tom, she has to have an activating mutation in the tyrosine kinase domain. He said, that's what's happening in these other two settings. He said, they just haven't found it. And so he said, send me some tumor. So I sent Dan her tumor sample, as well as nine other patients who had dramatic responses, and seven patients or eight patients who didn't have any response. And lo and behold, eight of the nine, using more sophisticated sequencing, Dan's lab was able to find. There was evidence of mutation in the tyrosine kinase domain, and in the seven who didn't respond, none of them had EGFR mutations. Now, can you explain what the EGFR pathway actually is, what exactly the EGFR mutation is, and where this mutation was occurring? So, I think there are three cancers that we know of now that seem to be at least three that we know what the oncogene is, where oncogene addiction seems to explain the tumor. And the three good examples that are. What do you mean by oncogene addiction? So, what I mean by oncogene addiction is that you have a tumor where one genetic change is the driving force and that it tends to be fairly simple. A good example of that is CML. We know that the BCR ABLE translocation creates an oncogene, which is the driving mutation that drives that cancer to become malignant. We know in GIST, the CKIT 
is what's driving that tumor to be malignant. And in this rare type of lung cancer, rare but important type of lung cancer, mutation in the EGFR drives that tumor such that when you inhibit EGFR signaling, you see in many cases a marked regression of cancers. Whereas in the non-EGFR mutated lung cancers, they tend to have a much more complex genetics and that knocking out any one pathway is probably not going to be enough to really get the kind of outcome you want to get. Can you explain where in the cell you see the EGFR receptor and where the mutation occurs? So the EGFR exists as one of four receptors on the surface of the cell. So it's on the surface of the cell, and there are a number of ligands or substances that bind to the receptor and activate the receptor. Once you activate the receptor on the surface of the cell, you cause a cascade of signaling events through the cell that eventually ends up telling the nucleus of the cell to grow and divide and gives the cell an enormous growth signal that says to grow. And so there are two ways of blocking the signal. One is to prevent the activating molecule from binding to the receptor, and we do that with the drug cetuximab, which is a monoclonal antibody that binds to the receptor and prevents the signaling to occur. And the second way is to poison the messaging machinery within the receptor, and that's what we do with jafitinib. That's on the inside of the cell. That's on the inside of the cell. So the small molecules like jafitinib and erlotinib get inside the cell, poison the signaling machinery, and therefore the signal can't get to the nucleus telling the cell to grow. I always remember when we did that interview, and then I read the paper, and I realized what was going on, and then you actually let me interview you again when you could talk about it, because there was an embargo, I guess, because of the news aspect. One of the other interesting things about that was how close the three laboratories were. um, Is that right? Oh, my gosh. It was was (laughs) within within weeks or months of these three (laughs) laboratories in terms of finding this. And the other interesting thing is that the Mass General Group, led by Daniel Haber, looked at it from one perspective. The Dana-Farber Group looked at it from sequencing huge numbers of kinases and found it that way. And the Memorial Group had yet another way to get there. So what was comforting to me was seeing that all three groups got to the same answer from three different ways. And then, you know, us out here in the real world trying to figure out what's going on. And I remember at that time when I tried to say, well, what do you think is going on? That The explanation that I got from you at that time was the idea that in some way this mutation affected the way the TKI, for example, or lotnib bound with it. Is that still what the thinking is? So we think two things. One, it does affect, we do think that binding is important, but I think more importantly than anything else, it also just defines a group of tumors where the biology is driven by the tumor as much as anything else. I mean, I think erlotinib binds pretty well to wild-type receptors, Mm. and so I think that's probably less of an issue now than it was four years ago. And the reason I say that is because when you look at higher affinity binding drugs, so ones that are more permanent and irreversible, they don't seem to do any better against non-mutant lung cancers as well. So I'm less convinced that binding is important now. Interesting. So just to start to get into this case that Mark and Ann were telling me about, it's this woman in her late 50s who was a non-smoker who presented with a few weeks of coughing and progressive shortness of the breath to the point that she gets admitted to the hospital and has what appears to be lymphangitic spread to both lungs. Previously completely healthy, no other evidence of tumor. They do a biopsy, adenocarcinoma, TTF1 positive, and their diagnosis was adenocarcinoma of the lung. The lady was close to intubation, and they actually decided they wanted to give her a lot. Now, this was a little bit over two years ago. And she was eligible for a clinical trial that was randomized between erlotinib alone and erlotinib with chemotherapy. And so she elected to go into the trial 
got randomized to erlotinib alone, and within a few days, her breathing got better, and essentially within a few weeks, had a complete clinical response to the erlotinib alone. Stayed on the erlotinib for a year, had a lot of problems with skin rash. Anne was telling me, I'd never heard this before, she was telling me the patient had long eyelashes. Have you ever seen that? Yes, so it's well described now that, heard of it. that the patients who are the long-term people who've benefited from erlotinib can get these incredibly unusual, I would describe them as funky eyelashes that can be several centimeters in length, and you do need to clip them for cosmetic reasons. They can also become infected. They can also interfere with your vision. They can become so long. I have absolutely no idea of why. There's actually a dermatologic term for these long eyelashes. Wow. I don't remember the name of it. It's like hyper trico something so these are, I didn't know that, but this is, tends to be in people who've been on it for a longer period of time. I, I've only seen it in the patients who've been on Erlotinib for several months to a couple of years. In any event, as it turns out, this woman was mutation positive, which I'm sure is not a surprise to you. I assume it was 19. Is that mostly what you see in the it could be. It could have been an 858 point mutation in 21, but it's probably an exon 19. We think the exon 19s tend to do a little better. Do the 21s respond the yes, same way? Yes, so the 21s seem to respond as well. We think the duration of benefits a little better with the exon 19s. So I guess up to that point, you know, I'm curious about your thoughts. She sounds like the patients in your original study. She sounds like exactly one of the people. I think one of the things we're struggling with now in the laboratory is you've got some of these people, just like Mark's patient, that we were able to get beautiful responses, but it only lasts for a year. And then we've got people like our original patient I told you about from Mass General, who it's now seven years and she's still responding. What's the difference there? And so I'd say over the past four years, since you and I first talked about this, the biggest thing we've learned is several mechanisms of resistance. And we now have three proposed mechanisms of resistance. One mechanism of resistance is the secondary mutation called T790M. And what we found is that in a large number of patients, T790M can be found in the tumor cells, even at diagnosis, and then it tends to grow out and overcome the non-T790M mutants. T790M patient cells don't respond to erlotinib. They're resistant to erlotinib. And if you have T790M, that's one mechanism of resistance. Second mechanism of resistance, which was described by Jeff Engelman from Mass General, along with Passiani from Dana-Farber, described just this past year in science, was amplification of the met oncogene. And what Engelman and Posse showed was that you could have alternative ways of sending the signal through the cell. And one of the ways of doing that was amplifying an alternative oncogene called C-met. And what's interesting, Niels, when you actually looked at a patient who died who had had an EGFR mutation, and they looked at an autopsy series, and what they found was in a lung nodule, there was T790M, and in a bone or lymph node, I can't recall whether it was bone or lymph node, there was C-MET amplification. So within the same patient, there were two different mechanisms of resistance. And I think that tells us a lot about how we're going to have to treat these patients eventually. You're going to have to find ways of hitting all of these different pathways early on in the care of patients. You know, I've got to divert out just for a second, then we'll come back to this case. We kind of talked about this at the Lung Cancer Think Tank last summer because I was starting to get a little bit cranky about our lack of progress in cancer research. And just the question of, you know, whether or not this path that we're taking in cancer research right now, which is completely dominated right now by molecular biology, pathways, everything that you're talking about, you know, is this really going to lead us to a situation where 10, 15 years from now we're going to have a significant impact on this disease? Or is this going to be another chemotherapy, which is you know, helps a few people but really doesn't create a big bump or drop in cancer mortality? So I would say that if you look at CML, 
it has made a difference in CML. When I was a fellow, when you were a fellow, chronic myelogenous leukemia was a basically three to four year disease. If you didn't get a bone marrow transplant, you'd die within three to four years. And that was what people were saying about testicular cancer and chemo, though. I mean, is CML going to be the way cancer is? Yeah, no, that's the question. Is, is CML the exception or has CML become the rule? Now, I would argue one of the things that I believe strongly in and one of the reasons I think your concern is well-placed is I think the idea that single-agent therapy in any of these tumors is going to make a difference is crazy. If you think about tuberculosis, we don't use one drug. You look at lymphoma, we use four drugs. So I would argue that for this patient, Mark's patient, that in the future, the way this woman will be treated, is she'll get a dual kinase inhibitor, which gets T790M, as well as a deletion. She'll get a drug that gets CMET. She'll get an angiogenesis inhibitor as part of her therapy. And then she'll get a fourth agent, which might overcome the third mechanism of resistance, which might have to do with autophagy pathways within cells. So I would argue that this woman will get four-drug therapy. And that this four-drug therapy, the reason you would do this is with the hope that you might be able to cure patients like that. Now, we haven't proven that yet, but I think that that tends to be the mechanism. Now, so then you'd ask, what are the barriers to come up with four-drug therapy? And the barriers are enormous because each drug company owns a different piece of the action. And to put together a trial with three separate drugs from three separate companies is absolutely impossible in the current climate in the United States. And, you know, it's interesting. Every time I interview people now, my team puts together a bunch of references from the speaker And I saw this incredible talk you did in Korea at the lung meetings. I guess those slides are posted on the website. What an amazing talk. And one of the things that I was reading, they actually have the transcription of everything you said there, which is an amazing world we live in. I can, instead of going to Korea, I can sit here and read what you said. But one of the points you made in that talk that I thought was really cool, and I'm not sure I've heard anybody talk about this, is the analogy to HIV. And the fact that we don't have what they have in HIV, which is a way to sort of titrate or measure what you're doing. So one of the things I found with HIV, and again, I remember being a house officer at Mass General when HIV was an incredibly lethal disease. And I remember my senior residency, AZT, came out. And, you know, AZT didn't do a heck of a lot. But if you looked at HIV therapy, one of the great successes there was how they were able to rapidly get four drugs online. And the reason they were able to do that was the surrogate endpoint, viral load. And viral load was such an important surrogate endpoint that allowed them to quickly put these things together. And so we need that in cancer. One possible advance is this identification of circulating tumor cells. Right, that's what I hear everybody talking about. And so I'd say... um, I mean, is that going to work? So it does work, and I'll say two things about that. One is that Daniel Haber, the same person who discovered EGFR mutations, his group, along with a guy named Mehmet Toner from Mass General, published a paper in Nature in December where they came up with a brand new technology for isolating circulating tumor cells. And Mehmet's an engineer. He's not a physician. And he's a guy who's interested in microfluidics, which I don't know a thing about. But his career, it's very interesting. He was hired at Mass General, and they said to him, listen, we need some way to isolate fetal cells from the circulation Mm. because we have all these women who are pregnant who we need to do amniocentesis on. And we know that some women, when you do an amnio, can lose the pregnancy from the amniocentesis. And would there be a way to get fetal cells out of the circulation? So this guy, Mehmet Toner, spent years working on isolating fetal cells, and he did it by creating these small chips with microposts and tried to get the fetal cells to bind to the microposts. Didn't go very far, but then it dawned on him, God, what if I was looking for something easier to find, something bigger, like tumor cells? Because the difference between a fetal cell and adult cell is pretty trivial. The difference between a cancer cell and a normal cell is enormous. 
And then he partnered with Daniel Haber and several other investigators, and suddenly they were able to, with extraordinary precision, remove circulating tumor cells from the circulation. And every patient with metastatic cancer we've looked at, we're finding circulating tumor cells. We've yet to have a negative. And in several patients with early cancer, we're finding circulating tumor cells. This technology is fourfold better than anything that's been looked at before. How easy or difficult is the technology or the technique? Well, the technique is in itself, it needs to be expanded. Right now, it's being done really in one laboratory, and we need to work with people who have experience in how one scales up a large commercial testing operation. We're a single cancer center. For this to be applicable, to be run on thousands of patients per year, we need to partner with testing companies who know how to do this. So the other thing you can find okay. is you can find resistance mechanisms in circulating tumor cells. Hmm. The other thing we're finding in one of the projects we're looking at is can you do this in prostate cancer hmm. and, and select men who have a disseminated prostate cancer where radical surgery might not necessarily be in their interest? And so those kinds of questions that circulating tumor cells will be able to give you I think will be extraordinary. Let me give you an example of what we're doing. So we see about 9,000 new cancer patients at Mass General Cancer Center. This month we're opening, we've opened, it opened two weeks ago, a molecular pathology laboratory. And in that molecular pathology laboratory, we will be screening initially all patients who are quote-unquote keepers, meaning people who are going to have their care at Mass General as opposed to second opinions. And Mm -hmm. we can do this for second opinions, but initially we're just going to do it for people who are going to have their care there. That we will look for 40 important oncogene changes Mm -hmm. in that group using a high-throughput sequencing machine, Mm -hmm. which we now have. And so we will get data, which we have everything on electronic medical records, so along exactly the lines you're looking at. Mm -hmm. We'll look for fish for about seven factors, mutations for about 40 factors, and IHC for Mm -hmm. a smaller number of factors. And therefore, because I think in the future, for example, let's look at CMET and think about CMET as a target. CMET amplification is going to be no more than 2 to 3% of lung cancers. It might be 10 to 15% of esophageal cancers. It might be a dozen cases of colorectal. And so what we want to be able to do is do trials of CMET inhibitors in people who have the target as opposed to CMET inhibitors in gastric so cancer. So across tumor lines. Across tumor lines. Right, right. So the reason, we're setting two, this, the reason we're setting this up is so that we can then have the information in the bank right. so that we can go back and say, these are all the patients who've got CMET amplified cancer. These are all the patients who have some other target. Where is it funded by, incidentally? So this is being funded from two sources. There's some grant funding. A lot of it's philanthropy because this kind of thing, as you can imagine, Neil, is not easily funded. But we've had some very helpful philanthropists who have seen the value of doing this and have been very supportive cool. and uh, been able to do it. The other thing is the cost of this stuff is coming down. Hmm. So whereas two years ago, $1,000 to sequence EGFR, with this multiplex PCR platform, we're able to do this entire panel for about $700. Hmm. So it's becoming more economically feasible. Interesting. You know, they talk about the $1,000 genome someday, hmm. that you'll be able to sequence the whole tumor genome for $1,000. Now, that's probably still five to 10 years away, but not impossible. Hmm. To be continued. Let's get back to this patient. I want to finish out on what happened to her. There's a couple more things that happened to her. First, she developed progressive disease, got put on carbotaxol, Bev, responded, did well. So she's a double responder to biologic therapy. And just one comment about that. I think that it's important to note that the same patients who tend to benefit from Tarceva as monotherapy with mutations, I think that group would benefit from chemotherapy as well. So I'm not surprised to see she's had a good response to carbotaxel, Bev. And so I guess at this point, she's just more of a shining example of the new biology of lung cancer. But then it gets really interesting in that she develops carcinomatous meningitis. How long has it been since she's been off? I think about a year. Okay, so in this patient population... 
I would definitely go back to a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. I think that either the high-dose gefitinib or what we've found is that you can even go back and treat people with erlotinib again and restore sensitivity. So well, I that's would what probably, they did. I would probably do that. Well, actually what they did, they wanted to put her on this trial that was out there looking at pulsed erlotinib for brain mats, I guess, or maybe CNS disease, but she was too sick to travel. And actually, the guy doing the study was visiting UNC, and they decided to treat her with an off-study. And she responded. Great. She's had a complete neurologic response. Great. And I've, and seen that, I've seen that several times in my practice. So and I was just curious what your thoughts are. I guess the idea there is to get a higher blood level, get more into the CSF. So I think two things probably happened to her. One, a higher blood level gets more into the CSF. But I think the other thing is, is that when you have a tumor with an exon 19 deletion, you treat it initially with Tarceva, then a resistant clone emerges. And let's just for chance say for her, it was a T790 mutant clone that emerged. Once you remove the Tarceva, suddenly the T790M clone, it's not as efficient an oncogene as the exon 19 deleted without the T790M. And so what we would predict would happen in a subset of patients, you would have regrowth of the non-T790M mutated. So you have regrowth of the the original clone. And so we have seen some responses in patients just by going back to the well with Tarceva, if there's been about a year or so interval. Not only have we seen this at Mass General, but Vince Miller's described this memorial as well. You know, it reminds me a little bit in breast cancer, there's been a lot of interest in lapatinib, which is another TKI and the brain, and question whether they even see responses. And I guess the idea is that TKIs are smaller, maybe they get into the brain better. What do you think about all that? So I think both Jafitinib and Erlotinib get into the brain. I've seen lots of responses, probably a dozen responses of brain metastasis as well as carcinomas meningitis. I think the problem is, is that you still run into the same problems in the brain that you run into peripherally. So eventually you become resistant the same way you become resistant peripherally. But I think that there's good evidence. You know, the other thing we don't know, we don't really understand the blood-brain barrier incredibly well. And... I think that there's a difference between an intact blood-brain barrier and a blood-brain barrier seen in patients with tumor. So I think it's very reasonable to think that these drugs might have a role in treating CNS disease. In fact, one of the things I've done off-protocol in a couple of circumstances, when patients come in with a lot of disease and they've got CNS involvement, I've been starting them on erlotinib, following their brain meds carefully, and not necessarily jumping to radiation right away, holding radiation in reserve until you can get the systemic disease controlled. We do see CNS responses. Hmm, fascinating. I'd like to finish out talking a little bit about bevacizumab, which is the other major biologic agent, at least up to now, that's been used with lung cancer. You know, I've been asking people this, and like now we're talking about Bev, not just in colon and breast and lung, but ovary, gliomas, renal cell. And no matter what tumor it is, though, nobody seems to be sure about why it works. What's your current speculation about the mechanism of anti-tumor action? So our groups at the Mass General Cancer Center have been the group probably as prominent as anyone for describing this concept of tumor vessel normalization. And Rakesh Jain's laboratory has, both in the setting of glioma as well as the setting of rectal cancer, have shown very elegantly that you actually can normalize the tumor vasculature, which leads to improved ability to deliver chemotherapy to hypoxic regions of tumor cells. The way Rakesh got into this, he's also an engineer, not a biologist initially by training, but he felt that hypoxia was one of the main reasons for radiation resistance. And I think that's now very well appreciated, that hypoxic regions of tumor do not shrink as well from radiotherapy. And so because his work was leading him down this area of looking at hypoxia, he then extended it to thinking about how bevacizumab might work. 
I would say in my mind, I think of Bev working in two ways. One, the vessel normalization when you're adding chemotherapy. Then I do think so the when chemotherapy you, gets into the tumor. Chemotherapy gets in and has a better killing effect in better oxygenated areas of tumor. And that happens in a matter of hours or days after starting your bevacizumab. And I guess you, we should see that say, very quickly. I guess we should say, too, that that work by Dr. Jane and Dr. Chris Willett was in rectal cancer. Yes. He's also they, done similar work in glioblastoma, though. Really? Yeah. Using AZD2171, not Avastin. But I mean with probes in the brain? They did it with using dynamic MRI oh, interesting. and a few biopsies. Now, obviously, not as many biopsies as they did in rectal cancer. So in the rectal, they had the lesion right yes. there. They could biopsy it. They were measuring the pressures inside of it. Yes. And they came up with this idea that, I guess, up until that point, the thinking was it worked by cutting back on the vasculature, anti-angiogenesis. And Rakesh will tell me and tell you that he believes that probably is also happening right, at a certain right. extent. So I think when you're in the maintenance phase of BEV, and you know one of the questions in lung cancer, Neil, that we're not 100% certain of is, what's the value of maintenance BEV? And so that's another area that... In other words, um, continuing the BEV after the Continuing the, the BEV stops. after the chemo's finished. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe strongly that's an important reason that BEV works is through the maintenance phase of BEV. And what more do we know about side effects and toxicity of BEV, and particularly the issue of pulmonary hemorrhage? So I think we continue to believe that pulmonary hemorrhage is something that we're concerned about. Those of us who've taken care of patients who've died from hemoptysis associated with BEV are quite worried about this. I think the good news from the AVAIL study that came out last year is if you select your patients well, stay away from squamous cell, stay away from patients who have hemoptysis, you can get a fairly acceptable safety profile with hemoptysis rates that are under 1%. And that avail study was another study that looked at bevacizumab and chemo. Bevacizumab and chemo. Another positive study. Exactly. Bevacizumab and chemo in Europe and found fairly acceptable rates of bevacizumab-induced hemoptysis. It was about 1%. What more do we know about why these hemorrhages occur? I've heard people talk about maybe it's part of a response to the treatment. What do we know about that? I think that's actually, there is something to that because the patients who tend to have hemoptysis, many of them have had lesions that have cavitated. We know that many of the anti angiogenic agents, both bevacizumab and the small molecule TKIs, cause cavitation within the tumor. And those patients seem to be the patients who are at risk. There's an interesting abstract that will be presented at ASCO this year from Dave Johnson, Alan Sandler, and the group at ECOG, who have suggested that cavitation looks like it's coming out as also a risk factor. If you have cavitation in the initial sample, initial films- Before treatment. Before treatment, that those patients may also be at risk for hemoptysis. Well, I've also heard people talk about patients developing cavitation after treatment. In other words, you know, maybe as part of a response. Does that seem to be part of this? Anecdotally, I think that that's true. I'm not sure we have a database or a experience. And so for the oncologists and oncology nurses treating these patients- I don't know what to do when I have a patient who has a huge cavitary response to carboplatin, paclitaxel, and Avastin, which we see. Generally, I stop the Avastin, but I can't tell you that's based on any evidence base. Now, these two biologic therapies that now have gotten into clinical practice, and you know, we could be looking at others very soon, particularly the question of cetuximab that's going to be presented at the ASCO meeting, but the two that we have right now with erlotinib and bevacizumab are also being evaluated in the adjuvant setting in clinical trials. How do you think that's going to play out? So I think that agents that improve the activity of chemotherapy 
are ripe to be looked at in the adjuvant setting. Heather Wakely, as you know, from ECOG, is leading a large national study, which is looking at chemotherapy plus or minus bevacizumab in that's the adjuvant, adjuvant setting. Chemo, right. Adjuvant chemotherapy, right. adjuvant bevacizumab. I think that's an incredibly important trial. And I think there's no reason to think that you won't see adjuvant. And there's an adjuvant Tarceva trial, which is ongoing. I think you'll see trials with all these agents in the adjuvant therapy. Like in breast cancer, the paradigm of showing a drug is better in metastatic disease and rapidly moving it into the adjuvant setting will follow the lead of our breast cancer colleagues. No, there are agents also being developed and coming out that target multiple pathways. And one kind of interesting, relevant to the Bev or Lotnib issue is ZD6474 or Zactima that seems to affect both of those pathways. Can you talk about that and those types of agents? So Zactima is a drug with a lot of excitement behind it. It actually has some good randomized phase two data data given either comparing as a single agent with Jafitinib from Ron Natale, where actually showed that you had improved progression-free survival in third-line lung cancer, and data from John Hamock, which compared docetaxel plus 6474 or Zactima versus docetaxel alone and found that Zactima was able to improve the ability of docetaxel to improve outcome. And those are now both in large phase three trials, and we expect to see the results of those hopefully within a year. But I actually think, Neil, that one of the great unmet needs now in lung cancer is an effective therapy for group of patients who may not have EGFR-activated lung cancers and may have traditional smokers lung cancer. What great strides have we made in second-line therapy? I mean, since Olympta and Taxotere and Tarceva have been announced, we really haven't had any great breakthroughs, and certainly combination therapy has not been shown to be beneficial. So the hope that adding a drug like 6474 to docetaxel could actually improve outcome, I think that's very exciting in that setting.